Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. I suppose there's uh, something that makes a little bit of sense about preaching on on what's kind of a semi-apocalyptic passage on Toad Suck Weekend. Um, It fits. It's not one of the signs, but I think some people would see it that way. Mark chapter 13, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter of Mark 13. We, we, we looked at 1 and 2 last weekend. We're going to look at them again briefly this week. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but a beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to all, stay awake. Most gracious Father, as we come to this most difficult passage, I ask that by your spirit you would help me to speak clearly, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are at what is known as the Olivet Discourse. You can find it here in Mark 13, you can find it in Matthew 24, and you can find it in Luke 21. And it's an incredibly difficult passage. It's always a little bit um, worrisome when, when I start studying and I start reading commentary after commentary and they begin this way. This is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. And I'm always just like, awesome. This is going to be so fun. And it is. I love, I love that. But this is a, a very difficult passage. And, and it's a difficult passage for just, just a whole bunch of reasons. First, there's this question of how does this relate to the the conversation that we started, that that ended in the temple. In those first two verses of chapter 13, where Jesus says all this is going to be destroyed. And and then the the disciples ask these questions, when and and what are going to be the signs? These questions are asked at some level, yes, in relation to the temple being destroyed. But there seems to have been some part of the conversation, perhaps, that, that wasn't recorded. I mean, there's, there's some distance between the, the temple where they are looking and saying, look at these stones, that they're right there, and then the Mount of Olives where they have this conversation. And, and what they talked about between those two places just isn't recorded. But we know from Matthew that, that the question extends beyond, the question that the disciples have extends beyond just the destruction of the temple. Because he gives a little bit fuller statement of what their their second question was. And that was, what are the signs of the coming of the Son of Man and of the end of the age? So so there there had been something that had precipitated even the disciples to move beyond just the destruction of the temple and and ask questions about kind of the end and to start asking some some eschatology questions. It's also a difficult passage in, in Mark 13 as it's recorded because verses 9 through 13... The, the part about being turned over, you know, parents turning over their kids and kids their parents and all that, like, and, and being taken before councils, that's not in Matthew's account of the, of the Olivet Discourse or in Luke's account. Now, that passage is in Matthew and it's in Luke, but it's actually in two different places in each of those Gospels. 
So there's this apologetic issue that we have to kind of go, okay, well, wait a minute. How does that work? Well, there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. One, it's, if you've been around me for any amount of time, or if you've been around anyone for any amount of time, you've heard the same things be said over and over. It's, sometimes we, we approach these apologetic issues as if Jesus was only allowed to say things once in his ministry and then he could never say them again. Well, listen, his disciples were as dense as we are. They needed to hear it repeatedly. So an entirely plausible, even probable explanation is, well, Jesus probably repeated himself at different points in his ministry. And as the disciples were recording the, the, the story, we know they didn't record everything. And so different things pop up in different places at different times. And so it's not something that we need to read this and be like, oh, the Bible's wrong, this isn't where... No, it's entirely... On top of that, we know Mark wasn't one of the 12. And probably, if, if the really smart people are right, probably Mark was recording the life of Jesus through Peter and his ministry. That's why so much of Mark feels more sermonic is because probably what he was doing was he was hearing Peter preach about this stuff and he was writing it down that way. And and so Peter in in sermons may have referenced different things at different times. So so the point is that that makes it difficult, but it doesn't need to cause us to doubt the word of God in any way whatsoever. It's also difficult because the the various timestamps that are found throughout this passage can be a little bit hard to map. If, if we start going, okay, exactly when is that? So that's those days, but that's not yet. But then this is if he hadn't done that. Like, and it just gets a little bit confusing as far as the, the timeline. It, it's also difficult because, for instance, verses 24 through 27 draw on a number of Old Testament passages that themselves aren't particularly easy to understand. And when you apply the the principle of let the clearer passages interpret the more difficult passages, sometimes at some places in this, it's hard to even tell, well, which of these is supposed to be the more clear passage that that makes sense of the other one? It's also difficult because categorizing the genre of this can be a little bit tricky. We we know that genre matters when you're interpreting the Bible. It matters when you're interpreting anything. Right? If, if you read a, a novel, you read that differently than if you read a biography because it's two different genres of literature. Well, if you read an epistle, one of the letters, you read that differently than if you're reading narrative because they're different genres of literature. If you're reading just regular narrative that's like kind of telling the history, you read that one way. You read apocalyptic literature a different way. Because apocalyptic literature tends to be full of of imagery and all kinds of things. And so where do we put this? On the one hand, it's it's more narrative because it's it's recording a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He's kind of explaining some things to them. But there's some things that that start sounding a little bit apocalyptic in it. And so we have to figure out, well, what do we do with that? And, 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 And... Oftentimes, when we kind of start diving into the apocalyptic stuff, we just, we just start trying to do far too much and start trying to be far too specific. And the next thing you know, we're, we're reading stuff and we're talking about flying cars and, and TIE fighters or whatever we think the future holds. R.T. France offers us a, a helpful kind of corrective. 
writing about this passage, he says, to discern the fulfillment of this warning in a particular known historical event, we could add, or in a a particular future event, to, to discern the fulfillment of this warning in a particular known historical or future event belongs not so much to exegesis of the text as to historical curiosity. We need to remember that. Sometimes we get a little bit too curious and we want some questions answered that the Bible's not actually answering. And when that happens, we almost 100% of the time go astray from understanding what the doctrine of the Bible is actually is that's being taught. Because we, our fantasy and our curiosity takes over. And the next thing we know, we're having all different kinds of conversations. So here's, here's what we're going to do. With that kind of introduction, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to focus on these two questions that the disciples ask. Because here's what we do know. The disciples ask two questions, and then Jesus starts talking. So normally when you have that kind of scenario, when somebody asks a question and then another person starts talking, it's very, very safe to assume that what that person is saying is an answer to those questions that were being asked. So that's what we're, we're going to assume that Jesus is answering the questions of the disciples because he wants them to understand. So here, here's their two questions in verse four. Tell us, when will these things be? There's the first question. When is this happening? And what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? What are the signs? So so when's it happening and how are we going to know that it's about to happen? That's what the disciples are looking for. When is it going to happen and how are we going to know that it's about to happen? But as we read these questions... For instance, Derek Thomas, who was, who was one of my uh, seminary professors, I read his sermons on this, and he preached a couple sermons on this. And, and the first thing he said is, look, these are two questions. They, they need to be treated separately. But the problem is, we don't always know in this passage which question Jesus is answering when. So, so his view is that, like, well, okay, so he does answer both of these questions, but he kind of just randomly bounces back, forth, back and forth between them, and we don't exactly know when he's answering which question. I don't like to disagree with Derek. But I do on this. I think we actually can know when he's answering these two questions. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think he answers the second question first, beginning in verse 5 and going down through verse 31. I think in those verses he's answering the the what are the signs, the, the how will we know this is about to happen. And then I think starting in verse 32, I think he's answering the when question. And and here's a a couple quick arguments for why I think that. One, that pattern holds in Matthew's version, in Mark's version, and in Luke's version. There's one thing. Second, it's only before verse 31 in in Mark and in the same corresponding section in Matthew that the word signs is used. Once you get to verse 32, they're not talking about signs anymore. The second question was about the signs of of this stuff happening. So so I think, well, where is he talking about signs? Up through verse 31. But then also, in verse 32, he gives a very, very direct answer to the when question. I don't know. So so we know 100% in verse 32, he's answering the first question. I don't know. 
So what's he doing the rest of the time? Well, I think he's answering the question of what are the signs? So that's how we're going to approach this. So first, what are the signs? Verses 5 through 31. There's a number of signs. There's false messiahs in, in, in verses 5 through, through 8. There's false messiahs. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's earthquakes and famines. And he says these are the beginnings of the birth pains. So this isn't the end. This is the beginning of the birth pains. Right? It's, it's a fair analogy. You're looking at, at when a woman gives birth. When, when the, the, the contractions start at the beginning... That's not giving birth. That, that's the beginning of the birth pains. Right? So, so th- this is like, let's just say, like, th- at this point, they're like 15 minutes apart. Right? That's what, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. When there's wars, rumors of wars, when there's the false messiahs, when there's the earthquakes and famines, 15 minutes apart. Things are just getting started. So that's not the end. That's the, we're just getting going good. And that's the timestamp that we have. The end is not yet in verse 7. All this has to happen, but the end is not yet. We're just getting going good. 15 minutes apart. Verses 9 through 13, he doesn't give us a timestamp. Uh, but here he talks about things like being delivered over, being beaten, proclaiming the gospel to all the world. That needs to happen to all, all nations. You, you could argue that, that, that that's done in, in this kind of uh, uh, paradigmatic way by the end of the book of Acts because the book of Acts is, is kind of outlined in, in chapter 1, verse 8 that, that the gospel must go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, lo and behold, that's how the book of Acts unfolds. The first few chapters are about Jerusalem, and then it moves to Judea and Samaria, and then you're out to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth at that point. I, I'm not saying we don't need to do evangelism. I don't, I'm not saying we don't need to send missionaries out. Not making that argument. Just saying we, we, we've got to make sure that we're letting the language be kind of what it is in light of the rest of, of Scripture. But he tells the disciples, you're, you're going to be handed over to councils, and, and he gives them all of this information. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So, so they're going to be hated. They're, they're, there's going to be family betrayal. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be delivered over to councils to, to stand before governors and kings but they're also going to be preaching the gospel. The gospel is also going to be going out to all nations. So it's not all bad. It'll be hard, but it's not all bad. And then verses 14 through 23, it starts to really get exciting because we have this abomination of desolation. Now, this is language from Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12. Probably there's a reference to it in chapter 9 also. And and in, in Daniel... The abomination of desolation is, is some figure that, that is set up in the temple, and, 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 and it's the, with that, the, the, the sacrifices are ended. And Daniel foretold, like, hey, this is going to happen. And then Antiochus Epiphanes puts his statue of Zeus there in the temple, and, and stuff kind of ends. And so Jesus is saying that something like that, something comparable to what Daniel foresaw coming, is going to come. Now, we can look at history and be like, man, some, some real stuff went down like AD, mid-80s, 60s through AD 70 with, with the Jewish war when the temple was destroyed and, and, and the pillars were set in place. And, and yeah, the, the, the sacrifices stopped. So, so we can look at that and be like, yeah, I mean, at some level there's been some fulfillment of this. But what we have to remember is that's not the only sign that's given. There's all kinds of other signs. And so, 
As we go through this, there's a timestamp here again, but, but again, it's, it's a vague timestamp. It's, it's in those days. Well, that's not super helpful, Jesus, as far as the when question. Remember, he's not answering the when question. He's answering the what question right now. In those days, there's going to be tribulation. Now, now we see tribulation mm, in the southern United States. Listen, we see tribulation and we're like, boom. All of a sudden, even if you didn't grow up in it, just download it immediately is like Tim LaHaye and Left Behind and the Rapture and like a pair of empty boots, you know, like, like, like that's just, you know, like bumper stickers, like, you know, in case of the Rapture, this car will be, you know, unmanned or like, like all that just, it's so, it's just downloaded culturally. Anytime we see the word tribulation, we've got to remember that, that that really just means like a time of trial. So, so th- this tribulation, like here, we don't have to read it as like, oh, there's this specific, specific thing that's going to happen. No, the, the time, I, I would argue, the time between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming, that, that entire time is going to be a time of tribulation for Christians. And, and, and at times it will be much more difficult. In areas it will be much more difficult. At times it will be relatively peaceful. And we can see that's how it's worked in history. We can look back at, at this time and look at the, the, the incredible tribulation under, under guys like Nero and, and Domitian. And, and, and we can look at different areas throughout the world, even today, where, where, where Christians are under incredible tribulation. Why? Because we're living in those days. We're living in those days when, when tribulation comes. And, 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 but then there's also this... this Timestamp that, but if, if God had not cut it short, no human being would have been able to survive. But for the sake of the elect, he did. So, so, so there's this kind of struggle, right? Because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, this is the description of history since the, the ascension of Christ. But on the other hand, Jesus also seems to have something a little more specific in mind. And so that's why we, we oftentimes look and go, yeah, I think there was some, some big fulfillment steps taken during all the stuff that happened around AD 70. The reign of Nero and the Jewish war and the destruction of the temple and all of those type things. But not everything happened at AD 70. That that was one point of fulfillment of what was going on. Then verses 24 through 27 is basically just one Old Testament reference after another. In, in every verse. So, so verse 24 is, is almost a direct quote of Isaiah 13.10. Verse 25 of Isaiah 34.4, which, by the way, also mentions a fig tree, which is the next thing Jesus talks about. Verse 26 is uh, seven, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 is clearly being referenced. And, and so all of this, but in those days after that tribulation, so th- there's going to be some tribulation in those days, and there's going to be some other stuff that happens. The sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. All of these references in Isaiah and Daniel, as we look back to them, have to do with the end, have to do with Christ coming again. And, and, and they have to do with kind of earthly governments kind of being undone, with things just, just falling apart, just the, the structures that we know, just kind of everything kind of coming unglued at the scene. And Jesus says, that's when you'll see the Son of Man coming. But he still doesn't, doesn't say when that. It's just in those days. After this one big, this abomination, desolation, and, and the tribulation that's attached to that, after that, then this is going to happen. But he doesn't say when. Just, again, in those days. 
In those days, that's when it's going to happen. Not, not super clear again. And then he tells this parable of the fig tree. And the, the whole point of this is like, look, when you see the, the fig tree start to bud, puts down its leaves, you know that summer is near. Right? Like we can completely relate to that. Even if you don't know anything about fig trees, you like over the last few weeks, you've looked out in your yard, and, like your grass is starting to grow, your trees are starting to bud, flowers are blooming, and you're like, oh, summer's coming. Spring is here, summer's coming. That's all Jesus is saying. There, there's no like mystical thing that we need to get. He's just like, no, it's on its way. Pay attention. When you see these signs, it's coming. Right? So, so he's answered now the, this question about what are the signs. And he says, he even says, like, You'll see all of these things in this generation. All of these signs, the disciples were going to see. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't be seen after that. He's just saying, you're going to see all this stuff too. And you can count on my word. Now, verse 32, as I said, things change. And he answers the when question. But, so here's the signs. Now he says, but, now let me back up and answer the first question you asked. But concerning that day or that hour, notice he's no longer talking about those days. He's being specific. Concerning that day, the day that this is all going down, no one knows. Not a whole lot more helpful than those days, right? But, but, but notice what he goes on to say. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. So, you know, contra how Lindsay and and all of his ilk, Jesus is saying, we don't know when this is going to happen. When the coming of the Son of Man, when the end is coming, we don't know. I can tell you what the signs are going to be. I can tell you, you know, what, what, what the fig leaves look like, so to speak. And all of those things are signs that it is coming. But I can't tell you, like, I can't pick a date, like October 3rd. To, like, we, he's like, no, I can't do that. I don't even know when this is going to be. The angels don't know when this is going to be. The Father knows, but that's it. And, and so the disciples are left somewhat, like, with an answer but not an answer. They, they get a really good answer about the signs. There's going to be all kinds of things that happen. False messiahs, false prophets, abomination causes desolation. Like, there's going to be all kinds of things. But as far as like when, we just don't have an answer to that. No one does. And, and if people do, they're, they're wrong. <laughs> By definition, because Jesus is like, you don't know. Okay? So, so what we should not do is we should not be the smart aleck kid in class. It's like, oh, I know. And then tries to answer a question that the teacher says in that is unanswerable. Like, no, don't do that. You're going to be wrong. And even when we go back to the Old Testament, we're like, oh, well, Daniel gave us some numbers. Yeah, he did. Some real random numbers that you can make add up to all kinds of different things. All kinds of different things. So, so even that, like, like, I get it. People love, like, putting the numbers together and be like, oh, here's, here's this. But we got to be careful with that. We, we know those numbers. I'm not saying they're incorrect. Not denying the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, not denying the inspiration of Scripture, not saying that the Spirit writing through Daniel didn't know what he was communicating, okay? But I am saying I don't think those numbers were given to us that we could write them down and add them up and be like, oh, this is the date. Why do I think that what, isn't what they were given for? Because 
surely Jesus would have been able to figure that out. If anybody could have cracked that code, Jesus could have. And he said, I don't even know. Only the Father does. So, but there's this third thread that runs through this story that I think really, while Jesus is answering the disciples' questions, I think really it's this third thread that runs through his answer that is the real point of his answer. And that is this. Throughout this entire answer to these two questions that Jesus has given, there's this pastoral thread that runs right through the whole thing. And sometimes this pastoral thread is read incorrectly. Sometimes this pastoral thread that Jesus kind of sows through his entire answer to these two questions is read as a threat. Like, you better be ready. You better endure. You, you better stay awake or you're going to miss the whole thing. Like, sometimes it's read that way. And, I mean, you know, that can be motivating, like, to get people to do stuff. If you need, like, your evangelism program boosted, you can be like, this is what it looks like to be ready. So you better get to it because we got to be ready because if he shows up and we're not awake, i.e. doing evangelism, then, man, we're done. Not saying we shouldn't do evangelism. We absolutely should. I'm just saying I don't think Jesus' point in all of this is a threat. I think he's providing comfort to his disciples as he weaves this pastoral thread through his answer. So let's look at some of what he says. Verse 5, he starts off, let no one lead you astray. Why does he start there? Because he knows one of the signs is, one of the things that's going to signify that the end is near is people are going to show up and they're going to lie to you about me. Even they're going to claim to be me. So dear disciples... Don't be led astray. Live, live with your eyes open. The David Koreshes are coming. And they're going to claim to be me. The, 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 there's people coming, he says, that are going to be able to perform signs and, and, and miracles. And they're going to claim to be speaking for me. Don't be led astray. Because, look, let's just be honest. If somebody walks up in here and performs a miracle, man, that's... That's some pretty compelling stuff. It would be easy to be led astray by that. Jesus is saying, he's giving this pastoral, this pastoral word, don't be deceived. I've given you my word. I've told you what needs to happen. Don't be deceived. Verse 9, but, but be on your guard. Why? Because they're going to deliver you over. So be ready. Keep watch. They're going to deliver you over. But then he says, in relation to this, he, he, he reminds them, be on your guard, be ready, because they're going to deliver, deliver you over. But remember this. My spirit will be with you. You're not being, when, when you get delivered over, and you're, and you're having to stand before councils and give an account, you're not being forgotten. You're not being abandoned by me. My spirit is with you. Think, think of, of the comfort that that is. There's this motorcycle organization called uh, Bikers Against Child Abuse, BACA. They, they ride around, they look like, you know, Hell's Angels or something, but they're actually like a bunch of big teddy bears. And they're kind of awesome. I would love to ride with them someday, except for like, 
I'm a pastor and you've got to be willing to like go places on Sunday morning to ride with them. Like, so I can't, it's kind of a bummer, but they're awesome. Here's what, here's what bikers against child abuse do. When, when the court has a kid that's been abused and they think that like that kid's perpetrator might try to contact them because maybe they live in the same neighborhood. Baca gets a call. They, they're not told the address. They're just like, hey, there's a kid. He lives in this neighborhood. Would you go be his friend? And so what they'll do is they show up at that kid's house and they're like, hey, this is who we are. And we want you to know something. We're on your side. We've got your back. So you got all these big, burly, tatted up, black leather beards, nasty, like, telling this kid, like, you're with us. And then occasionally they've been known to show up in the neighborhood and knock on doors and tell people that maybe had a hand in things, hey, that kid's with us now, just so you know. We're, just let, we're not targeting anybody. We're just letting everybody know he's with us. And they show up and go to court with the kid. I mean, it's really, it, it, this kid has this, these advocates that, that look like they can and, and probably have handled their stuff before. In spades, Jesus is saying, that's how it's going to be for you. You're not being abandoned to face court by yourself. You're not being abandoned to face your accusers by yourself. You're not being let go to just deal with your your stuff on your own. My spirit, the very spirit of God, God himself is with you. He'll have your back. Such a point of comfort. Such a pastoral tone that is struck. And and so it's, it's in that kind of vein that that we read in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So think about that. If you just hear, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, man, you you better get to enduring. But when you read that like, hey, you're going to be brought, you're going to be hauled in, but my spirit will be with you. And the one that endures will be. All of a sudden it's like, oh, the enduring isn't about me buckling down and being a super strong Christian that can endure because I'm so faithful. The enduring is about, no, the spirit of God will be with me. How will we endure? Because we won't be abandoned by God in our time of trial. That's way better. This isn't a threat at all. It's a promise. The one that endures will be saved. How, how is he going to make sure you endure? He's going to give you his spirit. See, when we do weird stuff with the text, we get weird theologies. But, but when we just read it, like, oh, you're going to give me your spirit, and he's going to speak through me, and people are going to hate, and, but, but the ones that endure will be saved. And we have to remember things that Jesus said in other places like, Anyone that the Father gave to me, I'm not losing any of them. None. In other words, if you're mine, if you've got the Spirit, you're going to endure right to the end. And you're going to be saved. It's not a threat. It's a word of pastoral comfort from Jesus to his disciples and to us. We don't have to ask these questions that sometimes we do like, oh man, if I was in that situation, I don't know what I would do. Yeah, you do. You would be strengthened by the Spirit. That's what you would do. That's what you would do.
And so the, these, these same things continue. Notice, I love, there, there's this abomination that causes desolation. We've got this like, mm, this like weird, like martyr complex. It's like, oh, when, it's get, when it gets hard, you better stay in there because we've used these endure passages as threats. But notice what Jesus says. When the abomination that causes desolation, when that comes, get the heck out of Dodge. How comforting is that? Jesus didn't say it's going to get hard, abomination causes desolation, destruction of the temple, it's going to get heated, stay there, stay strong, mount up with wings like, he didn't take the word of God out of context. He was like, hey, when this goes down, run. Get, how comforting is that? How comforting is that? That Jesus says, look, when it, when it gets hard, don't, look, don't even go back and get your cloak. Just bolt. My spirit's going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to forsake you. Don't even go back. Leave it all there. Because I've got you. I don't know about you, but for me, it's really comforting to know that sometimes in the face of trial, in the face of tribulation, in the face of struggle... It's entirely faithful to run. That's incredibly comforting. Yes, there are times he calls us to, to, to suffer. I get that. But he told his disciples to bolt. Leave Jerusalem. And pray that it doesn't. He didn't even want him to have to do it in winter. Pray that this doesn't happen in winter. Because that's going to be harder. He's just so pastorally concerned for his people. And then in verse 20, we're reminded, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. And here we're reminded, his eye is on you. If you're his, his eye is on you. And he's directing history itself so that your faith won't be undone. What in the world kind of God is this that directs history itself for the sake of his elect that we might not be led astray? That's the comfort of God that Christ is offering his disciples. He said, oh, it's going to get hard. But you're not forsaken. You're not forgotten. Faithfulness means you get to run. It's incredible. And he goes on, he tells them in verse 26, I am coming back. You can count on my word. And so stay awake. Be watchful. Be looking for me. Be looking for me. Because I'm coming back. I remember growing up, my dad, I didn't ask for permission to tell us. He was a traveling salesman. And so like a couple days a week, he would be like off selling stuff so that we could eat. And he was really good at it. But it was always fun. Usually Thursday was when he would get home. And, and around dinner, like we would know he was coming. And we, like the way our house was set up, there was a big bay window that looked out at the road that he would be driving down. And we would like wait and be like, Chase, Dad goes, Dad. Because we were waiting. Partly because we didn't get to eat till he got home. And we were hungry. But also we wanted Dad home. And so we, we stayed and we waited and we watched for him to get home. Or maybe you've got little kids. And, and they're supposed to go to bed. You go out on a date and you come home. This happens in our house. You come home long after bedtime and you hear. And you're like, what were they doing? They were staying awake waiting for you. Why? 
Not because they felt like, oh, if I don't stay awake, they're not coming. No, because they, they loved you and they knew that you loved them. This, is, this, I think, is closer to the image of what Jesus is calling us to. Stay awake because the one who loves you, the one who gave himself for you, the one who's not abandoning you, the one who's not forsaking you, the one who's not forgetting you, the one who told you it's okay sometimes when it gets scary to run, he's coming back. So stay awake and wait on him. See, this is comfort. These aren't threats. This is comfort. Your God is coming for you. Your Savior, your King is coming. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't lost control of history. We're we're enduring the signs that remind us He's coming. So wait for Him. Because He is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the hope that it gives us. And we ask that You would strengthen us to wait knowing that we're not forsaken, knowing that your eye is on us and that you direct history itself for the sake of your people. God, might we be comforted by your care for us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.